Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. Today, Pastor Jason is finishing up Peter's powerful preaching in part five of that series, continuing our walk through the book of Acts. Let's join Jason now in his message. Well, good morning. Welcome to Rancho Baptist Church. I am Pastor Jason, the senior pastor here, and we are continuing through the book of Acts. We've kind of been in a little bit of a mini-series here, (laughs) and Peter's powerful preaching. I started this, I don't know how many weeks ago. Today we are going to finish, by God's grace. Peter's powerful preaching, the first sermon ever preached, and I thought, man, what would be a good way for me to to summarize what we've seen, what God's Word has taught us, and I thought, you know, that the best thing is, is God's Word. So we're going to do the unthinkable, and we're going to start in verse 14, and I'm going to read all the way through to verse 42. And we are going to see and hear Peter's sermon for all that, that's contained in the scriptures that God has revealed to us. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2, starting in verses 14, and follow along with me as I read out loud. Peter's sermon here, the first sermon ever preached in Christ's church, and how it ends. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live In Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days Pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make full, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead 
and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that He was neither abandoned to Hades nor did His flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received His word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how powerful it is, how living and active it is. And we pray now, Lord, that you would guide us into all truth, that you would shape our hearts, you would inform our minds, and that you would use this, your word, to work in our lives in such a way that we would live in accordance with your will and what you reveal to us through your word. So speak to us now through your word. For it's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So as I was preparing for today and, and thinking through how everything wraps up and, and honestly wanting to just jump to verse 41 and talk about how the 3,000 souls are saved, I, I was taken back again by just some thoughts that I, that I was having. And, and, and these thoughts are, are the fact that at times I just don't believe that I consider the significance of salvation. At times I, I think I diminish salvation. I, I make it so small. And, and, and whether it's at a Harvest Crusade or a Billy Graham Crusade and I hear about tons and tons of people coming forward, I, I don't think I always rejoice in the conversion of a soul. And at times I think I just get callous to it. And I just look at it as numbers and I look at it as something impersonal far away from me. And, and so I, I kind of want to challenge us all to, to open up our, our, our minds as to what God is communicating. That, that these 3,000 before this time, they were headed to a complete different eternal destiny. And praise the Lord that they respond. But... The, that isn't always the case, right? We're, we're going to see that all of these respond, that, but there were a lot more than 3,000 people there. And even when I think about where we worked in Papua New Guinea and how God blessed the ministry that 
praise the Lord, we were able to be in. And when it came time to present the gospel, there was seriously almost the majority of our entire village believed. They repented and, and trusted in Christ. And, and we saw the fruit of that repentance played out throughout, throughout the years that we were there with the desire to, to know God's word better, to conform their lives to what God was telling them in the word, to, to gather as a, as a community, as an assembly of believers in accordance with what God's word was, was stating, what God's word was teaching them. But just over the mountain from us, there's a, another village there that some dear friends of ours worked in and, and, and their scenario is completely different. And I've heard of guys spending 20 years and just getting the language only to present the gospel and, and only two people respond and repent. And, and over the mountain from us, it, it was more than two, but it was not more than a, than a handful. And, and they try to orchestrate all sorts of things to get people to come and, and be discipled. And, and, and the reality is they just didn't care. They, they were kind of like, well, okay, thanks for coming and, and telling us about this, but that's okay. I, I want to keep living the way that I live. And any time that we see salvation, we need to rejoice and see, oh my, can you imagine that God did this? And that God is the author and the perfecter and the finisher of salvation. And that's what we're going to see today. And no, I'm not just going to jump to verse 41. <laughs> we're, we're actually going to see, first we're going to see Peter going back to, to this promise, which I believe points back to the Holy Spirit. And, and then we're going to see Peter talking about his, his final exhortation. And then we're going to see the result that, that I, I've been so excited about getting to. And then, and then finally, as a result of, of what happens and how a, a body is formed and so many are saved, we're going to see a devotion. A devotion that portrays itself in a, in a number of ways. But first, let's, let's take a look at verse 39 and, and we're going to see the extent of the promise. As Peter goes on, and we just read everything, and we know where we stopped last week, talking about Peter saying to them to repent and, and be baptized, and, and, and if they would repent, then they would be forgiven, and the Holy Spirit would be given to them as a gift. And then he says, For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. What is a promise? We, we've talked about this before. It's, it's a pledge. It's an offer. It's a declaration to do something with an implication of an obligation to actually carry out whatever it is that was stated. And praise the Lord that our God is infiniteness and His infiniteness is also incredibly faithful. In fact, perfectly faithful. There, there's not a time when God has not been faithful. And so there's never a promise that God is not going to keep. And so this promise that we saw earlier of, of the sending, the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit, that was going to come to fruition. And they have already seen that. And so he goes right back to this promise. But he doesn't just lay it out so that it's just for them, but he actually gives more to it. He, he extends this promise and includes these three different groups. And, and first he, he says the promise is for what? For you. For you right now that are listening, that if you do repent and you trust in Christ as your Savior, 
that, that you will receive this promise of the Holy Spirit that you've seen manifested here today. But it's not just for you. As he says next, it's, it's and for your children. And, and, and literally, that does mean that, uh, having a common ancestry. And, and, and you could take this and you can run off into the weeds with this and you could say, oh, so on the basis of, of my faith and my trusting in Christ, all my children are good to go. But we know that isn't consistent with Scripture. So that can't be what this means. That just because you receive the Holy Spirit, that then your children are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Because that goes contrary to so much of what Scripture teaches. So, so really what this is talking about is there could be a nuance where it is talking about the descendants of Israel because he is speaking to Jews. So he, he could be talking about the fact that later on there's going to be other Jews that profess faith in Christ that do repent, that do have repentant faith, as we talked about last week. But we also know from Romans that, that, that when we look at Father Abraham now, that, that he's both the, the father of the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Because he is the picture of faith. And, and so in essence, he could be talking about those outside of the nation of Israel. And that any that would then go ahead and place their faith and their confidence in Christ would receive this promise from here on out. And then he goes on to his third depiction of of the extent of this promise and how far it goes. And this in particular, man, this has a lot of meaning to me because this is where we were. This is where we ministered. Those who are far off. It's the idea of far off in space or a long time to get to someone. And it's this idea of of one position at a relatively great distance from another position. And and what it's talking about is how far away man is from God. Because God is such a holy, righteous God, and man is sinful in every aspect of his being, that that sin separates him. And that chasm between man and God is far, far, far away further than you and I could ever think about, could ever imagine. And there's no way that man can bridge that gap. And that's what this is talking about. How far away man is from God. The human distance from God. Now, now most likely when Peter's talking about this, he's probably thinking about the Jews that were part of the diaspora Jews, which goes back to the nation of Babylon and the, and the Assyrians and, and how they spread the Jews out and they were no longer in their promised land. But Luke would have been thinking it through a little different vantage point because he's now writing this. And as Luke is writing this, thinking this through, he's thinking, no, actually this goes further than that because what we're going to see in the book of Acts is that this wasn't just good news for the Jews. This was good news for the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish nation. And that when Christ establishes His church and then builds his church and continues to grow his church, it it extends out into the known world. And it includes the Gentiles who are considered so far off. As those in Papua New Guinea are considered so far off, but needed the gospel. As those in Temecula who still do not know of Jesus Christ, how they are far off right now as I speak. Isaiah 57, 19. Isaiah says it like this. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. That's God's perspective. That's God's heart. That's Jesus' mindset on where He wants His church to go. 
to the far ends of the earth. But he doesn't just say that, right? He also says, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. We see here the clear teaching that those who are saved, they're saved because God is the one who calls them to himself. But wait a minute, Pastor Jason. We, We just read verse 21 that says, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So is it me calling on the Lord? Or is it God calling me to Himself? And I would say, yes, both. Not either or. If all you're going to do is say, oh, it's all about my believing, and you're going to wipe out every scripture that talks about God calling or God's election, or, or that, man, you're going to have to get rid of a lot of scripture. And on the other hand, if, if you're going to say, oh no, it's only election, we don't see man's responsibility anywhere in scripture, you're going to have to wipe out a lot of scripture because it's here. So, so it's both and. On the one hand, yes, you call on the Lord. But on, on the other hand, it is the Lord calling you unto Himself unto salvation. I believe that it is God that actually grants you that gift of repentance to allow you to, to turn to Him. And, and we're going to see through, throughout the book of Acts that God oftentimes, or Jesus Christ, is the main focus of what is going on here. So God is at work. Jesus is at work. And that, that's what Peter is trying to, to remind them of. Not only that, but, but Peter, in his, he's not done yet. He, he gives them one last final exhortation. Look at verse 40. And, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, I know many of you are thinking, wow, this, this has taken Pastor Jason like five weeks just to get through this sermon, which could be close to, you know, five hours or, or however you want to look at it. But you know what this tells me? This tells me that Peter's sermon was far longer than mine, even if you, and if you went to five hours in this five part series, because right here we're seeing that there's all sorts of things that he said that, that aren't recorded because he's testifying and he's exhorting. He could have used other words. He could have used he's being a witness or he's calling, but, but instead he actually intensifies his, intensifies his words and says, solemnly testify. This is to solemnly urge, to charge, to warn with, with authority in matters of extraordinary importance regarding things that, that have a suggestion of peril. See, Peter is recognizing that, that eternity weighs in the balance. And so he wasn't going to just let it go with what he had already shared, even though what he shared was true, and he had already connected all the dots for them as to the fact that even from an Old Testament perspective, everything pointed to Jesus coming and that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But he doesn't leave it at that. He's calling them again and again and again to get their attention, exhorting them, testifying. And what is he saying? He's saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Literally in the Greek, be saved, is it's in the passive voice. So it's, let someone save you. Let God do the saving. You cannot save yourself. And if you keep going in the direction that you're going right now, you are following this bent, twisted, crooked generation. This world. If you keep following the way that the world tells you to go, it's just... Perverse. It's crooked. That's literally what perverse means. It's morally bent, twisted. And it'll take you spiritually off the path following God. 
and it'll lead you on a path to destruction, eternal destruction. You know, the same phrase is used in, in Deuteronomy 32.5 and Psalm 78.8, which both have to do with a generation that wandered in the wilderness. They, they wandered in the wilderness and, and never got to, to come into the promised land. That, that's a picture And and that's what this is saying. Peter recognized the significance of this time. That that this was his time to preach to them. He didn't know he was going to get an opportunity to preach to these guys again. Man, if you do not know Christ is your Savior, this is your day. Christ came and He died on the cross for the sins of, of those that would trust in Him. Do you believe that? Do you recognize there is no way for you to be restored to God, to escape this judgment without Jesus? That He is your life Savior. He is the one that will help you, that will save you from your sins. Man, if you want to talk about that after the the sermon, please come forward. He is imploring them, challenging them, testifying, exhorting them to enjoy deliverance and escape judgment. And praise the Lord, God gives us the result. The end result that we see in in, in verse 41. As he encourages them to basically step forward in faith. Look at how they respond. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So then, so it gives us some idea that, that there's some chronology going. We, we don't know exactly how long he kept admonishing and kept exhorting and kept testifying. Could have been a couple more hours after he'd already been preaching for hours. We, we don't know. But at some point it stopped. And then what did they do? It says they received his word. That they accepted his word and everything that he had said. Not as his word. It wasn't Peter's word. What did he keep doing? He kept pointing them back to God's word. And they were accepting God's word and what God's word said about who? About the Messiah, that he is indeed Christ. And then look at what it says. It says they were baptized. Now, now I touched on this a little bit last week, but I, I didn't fully blow this up. Think about the fact of what he, what he had told them before in verse 38, how they were to be baptized. He told them they were to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. There's nothing about the Holy Spirit or God the Father, right? But if we were to look at Matthew 28, 19-20, the Great Commission that we all know so well, we'd see there that Jesus' words actually were to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. So, so why is there a distinction? Because this is the Jews, And what we're going to see is when it comes to the Gentiles being baptized, yes, they're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there's so much more significance for the Jews coming forward and saying, yes, I will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is their Savior. He is their Messiah. He is the promised one that they were all waiting for that they had missed. And then he goes on and and, and he says this amazing statement. And that day there, there were added. Before this time, the church was 120, right? I mean, talk about like crazy growth. 
120 to 3,000 plus with one sermon. It wasn't like they scattered and went different places after this. They stayed together. This word added, the Greek writers make use of this word to signify the act by which a city or a town or a province changes their masters and the government system that they're, that they're submitting to and puts themselves under another government. So, so what, what, what he's communicating is that these 3,000 Jews, they had left the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Sadducees, the Sadducees, and, and what had they done? They'd come under the teaching of the apostles. And we're going to see that they didn't abandon all of you know, the things that, that the Jewish faith did. But they came forward and they were acknowledging publicly by being baptized that the Christ had come. And that the one who was just crucified by their own people was indeed the promised Messiah. And in Him, they had placed their faith. And that's why they were stepping forward in baptism. And that is huge. But it doesn't just say, notice, and and this is what, what has got me thinking about how I just don't consider salvation of other people. And, and even when I hear about something happening in some sort of, you know, revival or, or something that I, I downplay it. Look, look at what he says. Added about 3,000 souls. Not 3,000 people. 3,000 souls. The soul is the part of the person that is the immaterial part. And, and basically what he's talking about is he's talking about the eternal aspect. Now, I, I don't know where you're at. There's, there's different thoughts on whether or not we have three parts or two parts. And those that believe we have three parts, they call themselves trichotomists. And you don't have to remember any of this. Just remember that, that the three parts is the body, soul, and spirit. And they believe that the soul and the spirit are, are separated, that they're distinct. So you have this outward flesh, the body, you have a soul and you have a spirit. The spirit is the thing that lasts for eternity. The soul is that part of you that that gives Pastor Jason my identity, my personality, makes me me. And and both the soul and the spirit are going to exist for eternity. And at some point, we're going to be given resurrected bodies. Some are going to be given resurrected bodies unto eternal damnation. Others are going to be given resurrected bodies unto forever with God in heaven. Amen? Amen. I, I tend to believe that, that from Scripture, it's, it's really hard to, to make this distinction clear between the soul and the spirit. I, I, I'd be what, what, you would det- what you would call a dichotomist, somebody that believes that, that there's, there's basically two parts, that there is a body and there is a soul, and if you want to call it soul or, or, and spirit, okay. That when we look at Genesis 2, it says that when God breathed life into Adam, he, gave, he became a living soul. And then other places you see, it talks about a spirit. And there's no distinguishing between, oh, so if he didn't have a soul, then was he not a person? So was Adam, no. <laughs> it's understood when it says soul that his spirit is included. And so I don't believe you can separate them that easy. And yet if you want to separate them, go ahead. You can go to Hebrews 4.12 and you can tell, well, look at the Bible itself says that it's able to separate that and that, the soul and the spirit, just so you can't have bone and flesh and, and, and the sinews and, and this. Well, I believe his point is that there's, you know, a physical side of us and then 
or a material side of us and then an immaterial side. That's his main point. I don't think he's trying to distinguish, get down to that minute detail. But if, if, if you want to be a trichotomist, then, then praise the Lord. Why? Because is that going to change your eternal state? No. <laughs> you, you know, it's really amazing, I think, as you look at this verse, is the fact that it says three, about 3,000 souls. It doesn't say a great many. It's 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 very distinct, and it and it and it begs the question. Well, how did they know that there were about three thousand? Because if I was just going to take a guess, I couldn't. I'd have a hard time guessing between one thousand, two thousand, three thousand, and I actually might think that it's closer to eight hundred when there's really three thousand because I can't see very good when people are far away. And so if Peter was the one actually making this up, maybe he he didn't have such good eyes. And he's just, oh yeah, there's, yeah, 3,000 came forward in baptism because it went far back. And, and some scholars are going to say, oh, there's no way 3,000 people could be baptized. You know what? Archaeology is so cool that they've actually discovered that there were great big pools that could have done, they could have done this. Substantiated th- from scripture. But that's an aside. <laughs> as far as the 3,000, you know what this lends me to believe that they actually counted? that they actually kept records of who was professing faith in Christ and wanting to be baptized. Why? I believe because of like church membership. So that they would know who they, as the leaders, were responsible to look after, to care for. Because it's soul care. It's something that, that they recognized was important. And, and, and as the leaders of, the, of this church that has now emerged, they wanted to make sure, man, let's make sure we have our, our arms wrapped around all of these. And, and that's why I believe that, that church membership is important. And yet when you look at Scripture, it's not like you can just go to a pastor and say, boom, this is church membership. It tells you you need to have... No. But the fact that there was 3,000, they knew exactly or roughly how many were there, it let, lends me to believe that that was the case. So it goes from the church from being 120 to, to 3,000 plus. They all stepped forward in obedience and were baptized. But what were they all about? What, what characterized this church? What would you say was, was, was the main thing? Or what were the main things of this church? And, and praise the Lord, God gives us four characteristics that reveal the basic components of what God desires for His church and how that, that church, how Christ's church should function as a community. All of these go towards community. All of these go towards the idea that we are to be a body functioning one with another, as we're going to see. And it was characterized first by devotion, the devotion that followed. Look at verse 32. Sorry. 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So, so those are the four pillars. And what we see here is a model church. Notice I, I didn't say a perfect church because we're going to see right from the start. We don't have to get very far. We're going to get to chapter 5 and, and we're going to see that this church was far from perfect. You had, you had some coming forth that were just lying. And then that was it. You, you, had, you had others that, that were in doctrinal error. So, so it's not a perfect church. It's far from a perfect church, but it is the model. And it is what we should be like 
And the things that they consider to be the, the main thing, that's what we should be, that's what we should consider to be the main thing. But just from an observation kind of standpoint, let's just think about some of the things that we, that we see with this church. First, it was quite a large church. It had gone from 120 to over 3,000. So many working parts. It was located where? In a city. Kind of like Temecula, a metropolis, a big city. And who was it composed of? Believers. In, in fact, only believers. Does, does that mean that we should not have unbelievers come to church? No, please, let, let's bring unbelievers to church so that they can hear, so that they can listen, so that they can see the way that we relate with one another, so they can hear God's Word taught, so they can, they can listen to how we worship the Lord. And perhaps by God's grace, they will indeed get saved. But they are not the purpose for why we meet. Why we meet is for the assembly of the body of believers. And, and as such, when it comes to church membership or even serving, that, that has to be something that we do as believers. And I, I think it, it's clear that, that a church could be defined like this. It's an assembly of saved worshipers pursuing holiness and spiritual service. That, that's what we're going to see with, with, with this early church. That's what they were. That's what they did. That's who they are. An assembly of saved worshipers pursuing holiness and spiritual service. Now, did they have leaders? Yes, they did have leaders. And at the beginning, there were only the twelve. And, and, and actually, I didn't even make mention of this last week, but did you notice in verse 37, when they came and asked the question, they didn't just ask it to Peter. They asked it to Peter and the rest of the apostles. Why? Because they were functioning in plurality. And we're going to see that. There wasn't just one guy that was in charge. They were functioning together. And yet Peter was the spokesman most times. But that doesn't mean that he was up here and they were all down here. But these 12 leaders, they, they will find in chapter 6, that they couldn't do everything themselves. So what did they do? They, they appointed seven deacons. And then throughout the rest of the book of Acts, all we're going to hear about is these 19. No! The whole body was involved. All the believers were doing the work of the ministry. God never intended just for the leaders to do all the work in a church. This is something that we're all supposed to be involved in. And that's why we see that the first thing mentioned about these believers is that they were continually devoting themselves to these four things. Continually devoting themselves to these four things. Devoted has, has the idea of persistence or perseverance in something. It, it's, it's the meaning, it has a meaning also of steadfastness or single-mindedness. This brings about the idea that, that they wanted to keep the main thing the main thing. And they were directed as to what they were going to keep concentrating their efforts on. And they were going to keep concentrating their efforts on these four things. Number one was the teaching of the apostles. That's what they say. And I believe it comes first because it was of utmost importance to them. And it's something that we see throughout the book of Acts. The importance of teaching. Instruction has to be an important, the important perspective priority of the church. You know, Luke could have said many things. He could have said they were, they were a joyful church because we're going to see they are a joyful church. He could have said they're an ever-expanding church because they do keep growing and growing. He, he could have even said that, that they were a vibrant church. 
Because we're, we're going to see that. But he doesn't focus on that because he doesn't want to have them focus on their experiences or, or anything else at the beginning except for God's Word. And remember what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen 19-20. What I just referred to about the Great Commission. He says this, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy 2.2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then Peter, he says it like this in in 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The apostolic teaching that, that they're talking about here, do you know what that becomes? That becomes the New Testament. <laughs> that becomes what you and I are holding in our hands. And, and that is what they took. They, this is what they taught, what they preached, what they passed down, what they wrote down to individuals, to churches as they began sending these letters. You see, Scripture is, is the food for us as believers and, it, and it's supposed to be the food for, for the church. This is what we should be eating every day, which means that there is no other food And so this is what should comprise RBC. We should be about the Word. Not just on Sundays, not just in Sunday school class, not just on Wednesday night at Awana, but but in our homes and in the way that we function. And may I throw this out to you all, that I believe something that will really help each one of us in our spiritual growth, and I'm talking about myself as well, is if we invest in one another, and that part of that investment does speak to the Word, but it also speaks to the idea of possibly having home fellowship groups where we spend time with one another, encouraging, challenging one another. In fact, do you know where Peter goes next? After he talks about the Word and how important the teaching of the Word is, he says, and to fellowship. We've all heard this word in the Greek, it's koinonia. Lots of people like to throw out koinonia, but I'm not so certain that we actually practice koinonia too much. It's it's a close association involving mutual interest and sharing. It's it's a kind of fellowship that has something to do with with holding something in common, like our faith in common. It's, It's a shared activity, such as what you would see in a marriage relationship, a shared life. There's a real sense of connection to, between, and for each other. I think you could define it like this. Fellowship would be the practical art of sharing life with each other at all levels. It's not me just talking to you about sports, but actually getting in a little bit deeper. Investing in one another. It could also be defined as the practicing of the one another's of the New Testament. I'm going to skip over the breaking of bread because we're actually going to do that. We're we're actually going to be able to to put this to practice today and and, and follow the model of of this, the first church, and and, and take communion one with another. So I'll get back to that in a minute. And let's go to the last one that, that is mentioned here. And to what? And to prayer. Actually, it says the prayer, so so it's it's more of, of, of an idea of of a corporate prayer and something that they were devoting themselves to, saying, man, we're going to pray, we're going to pray, we're going to pray, we're going to pray. And we see this 
in the book of Acts. We've already seen it. Right before they even get to the point to where the Holy Spirit comes, what were they doing? They were praying. And as you look at the Gospel of Luke, do you, do you know what Luke highlights in the life of Jesus? He highlights his prayer life. He shows us over and over again how Christ was constantly going to the Father in prayer. Maybe he did that as a parallel to show now, man, just as Christ continually went to the Father, and did Jesus have to go to the Father in prayer? No, he was one with the Father. But he's giving us an example so that when we come to Acts, it should make sense. Yes, as a church, we should be constantly coming to the Father in prayer. We should be showing our dependency upon him for seeking his direction through prayer. So, so we've seen some, some pretty monumental things, some pillars of the New Testament church. We've seen that they were all about a devotion to the Word of God, to the Scriptures, to the teaching. They, they were devoted as well to, to fellowship, to one anothering, to prayer. And we're going to see that, that they were also devoted to the Lord's Supper. And we'll get to that in just a minute, but I didn't want to forget to give you guys the the points to ponder as well so that you can take this with you this week. They're already in your bulletin. Just some things to consider that I've been considering this week and, and it's been quite convicting to me. N- number one, consider the devotion to the teaching of God's Word of the early church. Is the Bible really that important to you? And do you desire to spend time in it? Consider the devotion to fellowship of the early church. How are you doing with the practical art of sharing life with each other at all levels here at RBC? Or is it something that you're not involved in at all? Consider the devotion to prayer of the early church. Would you consider RBC to be devoted to prayer? Would you consider yourself as being devoted to prayer, as being a person if somebody asked you? Are Is that person, say your spouse, really devoted to prayer? Man, these are things that the Lord has been convicting me of this week. We have a a, a very neat opportunity now. Could I have the elders um, come forward, please? To actually put into practice what, what we see here in the book of Acts. And in... In the Greek, when it says the breaking of bread, that, that, that verb break, klao, is, is, is literally to break. And I, I think now, in, sometimes, in our, at least in our American churches, what I've noticed is I, I lose the significance of the unity of that. Because there's no way somebody wants to get a great big loaf of bread and everybody hand it to the next person and take off a little break because everybody, oh, was that guy's hands dirty? And what was he doing? Oh, and I might get sick and, and this and that. And yet, when we were in Papua New Guinea, the, the way that we did communion, we did communion in a whole bunch of different ways, actually. Sometimes it was just among families. Sometimes it was among the men. Sometimes it was among the women. Sometimes it was everybody together. Sometimes we'd let people spend time before the Lord first and then we'd come together. All, all sorts of different ways. But each time, when it came to the bread, we just had like this great big tortilla-looking thing that was like two inches thick. And it was one piece. And you'd break it off and pass it down. And, and, and I know that you germ phobes out there, oh my, 
But, but you know what that was? That was so encouraging as far as the body because we are a body. You know, this is something that we're supposed to do as a body. Is it okay for us as a family to celebrate communion? Yes. But so much more as a, as a body of, of Christ. Do we go to someone's house who, who isn't able to come to church? Yes, as pastors, we do that. Why? Because we want to involve them in this body. We want to be able to wrap arms and allow them to celebrate Christ with us, remembering Him because that's what this is. And so, yes, we, we can do that, but much more so we should do that one with another. That we should be celebrating this time. But it's not just a memorial. Tur- turn with me to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As the, the Apostle Paul gives us a, a bit of a warning as well. And I, I think that this is important for us to consider before we come to the Lord's table and enjoy this as a body, which we should do, rejoicing in what God has done for us in the sacrifice of His Son, in in, in the bread and the juice that represents His body, His blood. Look at what it says in 27 to 30. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. You know, the the first time that we did communion in our village... Nobody wanted to take communion because just over the mountain from us, there was a guy who was now in a wheelchair. And they said the reason is because he took communion in an unworthy manner. They didn't even know what that meant. And, and I, I don't do read this to scare everyone because that, that, I don't believe that's the intention. The intention is to make sure that we as a body are unified and that if you have something against your brother that you have not got right, and that brother is, is part of the body here at RBC, then, then, then I would encourage you, challenge you, to wait and get that right first so that we can then enjoy this together as a body. And I don't want to turn this into this big, long time of, of introspection and, and that, but yet at the same time, I believe that we do need to set a time a little bit for examining ourselves, asking the Lord to reveal to us, man, are we ready for this. And so I, I'm going to do that now. I'm just going to let all of us spend some time in prayer, silently asking the Lord, preparing our hearts so that we can do this one with another. So let's spend some time in prayer. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. And here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.